the cross. All morning we've been singing about it. We've been seeing some videos about what it means. But I want to ask you this morning, what does the cross mean to you? Maybe to you it's just a symbol. Something you see on top of a, a church building. Something like a logo is to a, to a business. Maybe it's just a brand to you. Something that tells you that place has something to do with uh, tradition or ceremony. Maybe you, to you it's a symbol you see on a grave or in a cemetery. Something you see alongside the road where there was an accident. Maybe somebody died there. Something that's a reminder of someone who isn't here anymore. For some of you, the cross might just be a symbol of legend or myth. Something you see in movies that defeats vampires. Perhaps you see it as something ancient that has no meaning for us today. Or maybe you know what the cross means to Christians, but you still don't completely understand or fully believe in its implications. Maybe it just seems like a, like a superstition. There's nothing new there. Some people have seen the cross that way for centuries. Well, to prepare for this weekend, I looked at every passage in the Bible that mentions the cross. And I saw a recurring theme there. Just like that video we just saw, there seemed to be voices pulling in opposite directions. The cross might seem to mean one thing, but it really means something else. It stirs up conflicting or opposing viewpoints as far as its significance. The cross raises some interesting contrasts that I hope will challenge our thinking today and in our living as well. So as we begin, take the study guide out of your worship folder. We're going to be looking at passages all over the Bible this morning, but we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So you can turn there in your Bible or click over there on your app. Each of the main passages we're going to look at are on your study guide. But before we dive into the Word, let's take a moment and pray. God, this morning as we look into the Word, just as you've already done last night and earlier this morning, I pray, God, that you would speak to hearts all over this room. God, that customized message exactly what you want to say to each person. God, bring that message of the cross home to each one here. Help us to, to be able to receive it today. Hear it. Accept it. I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. In our time together, we're going to consider five contrasts of the cross. And this first one we're going to look at is going to set the stage for each of the others. As I said, we're going to find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Skip down to verse 22. Jews demand signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, in foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, Paul is writing here to the church at Corinth. Corinth is a city in ancient Greece, and uh, it was a church that was pretty messed up. They were getting a lot of things wrong, and one of the things they were not getting was the centrality of the cross to the message of Jesus Christ. 
See, the Corinthians got all wrapped up in who was delivering the message more than the content of it. And this particular part of the this particular message is the most important message in all of history, the message of Jesus Christ and his cross, the gospel, the good news. We'll get to the details of that message in a minute. But despite the significance of the gospel message that Paul and others had personally spoken to them many times, the Corinthians missed its point. Paul's calling that to their attention here in 1 Corinthians 1, and this is the first contrast I want you to see. The cross seems like foolishness, but it is power and wisdom. Now, Paul starts in verse 18 by saying the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Who is that? Well, there's a hint in the second part of the verse when it says the cross is wisdom to those who are being saved. What he's saying is the message of the cross is power to those who believe it, and it's foolishness to those who don't. Then in verse 19, he paraphrases uh, Isaiah 29, 14. That verse says this, Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. So in this verse in Isaiah, God is, is telling Israel he has the power to do miraculous things and that his wisdom and intelligence are far beyond anything man can come up with. Then in verse 22, Paul says the Jewish people were looking for signs. They had done that throughout the earthly ministry of Jesus. Many times people are coming up to Jesus and saying, hey, he, I want you to prove who you are. Do, do a miracle. Matthew uh, 12, 38, Mark 8, 11, Luke 11, 16, John 4, 48. I listed them on your study guide. Those are a few examples. You can look at those. Now, the Greeks, on the other hand, they were always looking for wisdom. To them, they just valued learning above everything else. They, they thought if they could understand the world, they could use all their insights to fix all of its problems. But in verse 23, Paul says that he preached Christ. Jesus Christ crucified, and the message of the cross messed with the thinkings of both the Jews and the Greeks. See, the Jews, they expected the Messiah to come in royal triumph as a political king and take over. They expected him to save them from the Roman authorities. But Jesus went to the cross and laid down his life. That, that wasn't the power they were looking for. Meanwhile, the cross represented foolishness to the Greeks. To them, no reputable person would be crucified, and, and certainly not willingly. No criminal could save the world. But Paul says that Christ and his cross reflect both the power of God and the wisdom of God. See, the cross held what both the Jews and Greeks were looking for, even though both groups thought the exact opposite. Even today, what our culture sees as, as power and wisdom is far surpassed by Christ and his cross. Second contrast, the ruler became servant at the cross. Now we get to the content of the message, the reality of what Jesus did at the cross. Paul spells that out in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, 
being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, Paul's telling us here we should emulate the mindset of Jesus Christ himself. And he lays out that uh, very eloquently here in these verses. First, in verse 6, Paul's saying that Jesus is God. Now, some will tell you that Jesus was just a good teacher or a man who spread a message of love, and those things are true. But more than that, Jesus was fully God. But Paul also says that Jesus didn't use being God to his own advantage. He didn't come to earth to use his authority or power to like boss people around and be in charge. Instead, verse 7 tells us Jesus took on the role of a servant. It says he was made in human likeness. In other words, he came to earth as a man. So because Jesus was both fully God and fully man, he did what none of us could do. He lived a perfect human life. Then verse 8 tells us just how far Jesus took his servanthood. He was so willing to humble himself, he was obedient to death on a cross. Obedient to whom, maybe you ask? You could make the case the Roman authorities that sentenced him to death. Maybe the Jewish religious leaders that falsely accused him. But in reality, he was obedient to God the Father in carrying out a rescue mission for mankind, a plan that had been set in place in ages past before the world even existed. Now, Jesus allowed himself to be put in the lowest place. He accepted a death that was fit for common criminals. As, as we talked about earlier, it was a death no reputable person in that society would accept. People wouldn't even talk about crucifixion that was held in such low regard. But because of his humility and obedience, God the Father elevated Jesus to the highest place, the place of ultimate honor, ruling in power and authority over everything. Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, it says this, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Paul says that just the name of Jesus will make everyone and everything bow in submission. may not be happening on earth today, but one day everyone will bow to Jesus. Everyone will acknowledge his authority over them. Everyone. The only question is this. Are you going to do it now? Or are you going to wait until you have no choice? third contrast the perfect one died on the cross to save sinners okay so jesus went to the cross he he set aside all of his kingly prerogatives and humbled himself but why what, what purpose did it serve 
Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 21, it says this. To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Peter starts by saying that Christ suffered for us. And and then he says Jesus lived that perfect human life we just talked about. And then he tells us how Jesus humbled himself, how, how he didn't retaliate, how he took their insults. Now, was Jesus forced to go to the cross? Well, of course not. Jesus was God. He had the power to opt out any time during the whole process. But he trusted God the Father, the just judge, and stuck with the plan. Jesus said this in John 10, 17. The reason my Father loves me is I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. Hey, make no mistake about it. Jesus chose to go to the cross. He wasn't at the mercy of the Jewish religious establishment or the Roman authorities. He wasn't helpless. At a single thought, he could have had an army of angels rescue him. He didn't. He chose to lay down his life. But why did King Jesus subject himself to the the disrespect, the the humiliation, the physical torture? Verse 24 tells us he bore our sins on the cross. I said before the gospel is called the good news, but that's because there's also bad news. Every one of us has sinned. We've broken God's law. And since a holy, perfect God can't tolerate sin, each of us are doomed by our very nature to be separated from God. For mankind to have a a bridge to God, for us to be reconciled uh, to Him, a perfect sacrifice had to be made. Sinless blood had to be spilled. Jesus willingly became that sacrifice. The perfect one had to die to buy eternal life for sinful men. He took the place of each of us on that cross as our substitute. Through His wounds, By his suffering, we are healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. The sacrifice of Jesus allows us to put our trust in his perfection because he died as our substitute. God can look on us and not see all the things we've done wrong but instead see the sinless perfection of Jesus. Jesus loved you enough to die in your place for your sins. Fourth contrast. The cross turned suffering and shame into joy. We've seen the power and wisdom of the cross. We've seen how Jesus humbled himself then was exalted. We saw how a perfect Jesus had to die to save imperfect people. But how could Jesus bear up under that? 
The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 12, starting in the middle of verse 1, Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. By saying that Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of faith, this is telling us again that Jesus is our example, just like we saw in 1 Peter 2, just like we saw in Philippians 2. This passage is saying that keeping our focus on Jesus helps us to keep going in difficult circumstances, just like Jesus himself did. But verse 2 tells us about how Jesus was able to endure the cross. Now, at the cross, there was suffering. The cross was the, the cruelest form of death known, the pure torture. And leading up to it, Jesus had been beaten, had a crown of thorns stuck into his scalp. After all that, he was forced to carry his own cross to the point where he collapsed under it. And at the cross, there was shame. Jesus was insulted. They spit on him. They blindfolded him and struck him, and they said, Hey, Jesus, tell us who hit you. They cast lots for his clothes. His friends deserted him in his time of need. Peter denied he even knew him. But worse than all that, God the Father turned his back on him because as Jesus took on the sins of man, a holy God couldn't look on it. The sun even stopped shining. But Jesus kept his eyes on the end game, his ultimate goal. He offered a way for mankind to be reconciled to God, a way for each of us to have our sins forgiven. And in the process, he glorified himself. He ended up seated in that place of authority and power at the right hand of God, just as we saw in Philippians chapter 2. Finally, the last contrast. The cross appeared to be defeat, but it was victory. Luke's account of the death of Jesus is found in Luke chapter 23, starting in verse 32. Let me read it to you. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And he divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and, and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him that, that read, this is the king of the Jews. Verse 44, it was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. That seems like the end. Certainly sounds like defeat. And if that were the end of the story of Jesus Christ, I, I dare say we wouldn't be here talking about it some 2,000 years later cross would be a footnote in history at best the story of a falsely accused man who died a cruel death an injustice sure but nothing out of the ordinary in human history 
but it's what came next that changed everything. It's what gives us the cross. It's, it's power and joy and healing. It's what makes it relevant to every single one of us here today. Luke chapter 24, I'm going to start in verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here, for he is risen. Yeah, Jesus Christ endured the cross, but he defeated death. He was raised back to life. He's alive even today, enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. And that victory isn't for Jesus alone. He didn't use the fact that he was God to his own advantage. It's for you as well. Colossians chapter 2, I'm going to start in the middle of verse 13. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That's why the cross isn't just a myth or legend. It isn't just the logo of Christianity. It isn't something that's fallen out of vogue or has become old-fashioned. The cross stands. The cross matters to every one of us here today. It's just as relevant now as it was to those who witnessed it in person. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul said that the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God to those who are called. Who is that? You know, many have heard the gospel message of the cross of Christ throughout the centuries. You've heard it here today. The message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified that Paul talked about. But hearing the message isn't what's important. It's what you're going to do about it that matters. Will you bow your knee to Jesus willingly now? Are you going to wait to that day when everyone's going to do it whether they want to or not? It really comes down to two choices. Either you're going to accept the gospel message during this life or you're going to reject it. Accept it, you'll spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Reject it, you'll be separated from God forever. And once this life's over, your decision's final. There's not going to be any do-overs. If you've not believed the gospel, not accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf, I pray that today will be the day that you do so. Don't leave this room without doing it. Now, if you've already believed it, my hope for you today is this. You're going to live in a renewed sense of its power and wisdom and joy and victory in your life. So as we wrap up our time in the Word together today, I want you to consider your own personal response to the cross of Christ in this gospel. 